I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I am your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we need you and love you and seek you. We thank you uh, for life. Uh, we apologize for our fa failures in the flesh. We uh, pray for our volunteers, our staff, and people who are watching, people who are here, and people who contribute to the ministry with their prayers and and. Uh, the things that they provide, and Lord, you're just with us all, and we just uh, thank you, and we pray that your spirit will be with those who are seeking for truth, and that I'll be able to share something that's of value. In Jesus' name, amen. How about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. All right, as uh, a Christian, I have long looked at Islam as uh, an evil empire, one that stands in opposition to the faith that I hold dear. Years ago on a business trip to Sri Lanka, I became acquainted with an Islamic family, and I went to their home, and I read, and I sat with the elders of the community, and we looked at the Quran, and we talked. And uh, we were surrounded by children who loved, they, they loved their children, food that was cooked, and laughter, and games good sense of humor, a deep abiding faith in Allah. And uh, the walls at that time began to break down a little bit in me. On September 11th, I woke up and I watched on live television as the second plane went into the tower. And uh, I experienced a reemergence of my old feelings about the Islamic faith, kind of saying to myself, only an evil religion full of evil people could do such a thing. Uh, but I couldn't help but remember the times uh, that I shared with that Muslim family in Southeast Asia and how there was a palpable difference between them and some of the more militant Muslims I met when I was over there as well. If I were honest, uh, if we were honest, we see the same thing coming out of all organized faiths. There is good and there is evil. Uh, admittedly, none are good or none of us are good in the sense of we are without sin. We all are bad in that way. But there are those who do seek God in spirit and in truth and those who use him and his name to do evil, obviously. Muslims and Christians alike. Do Muslims accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, author and finisher of the faith? Not yet. Uh, but I believe that those of the faith who love God and love truth and uh, they will. Now listen, here is something we have to admit as Christians. They, as a people, as a nation, are the product of God. We don't talk about that much in Christianity. All the way back in Genesis, we read of the Islamic origins. Abraham, the father of the faith for Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike, took Hagar, the handmaiden of his wife, Sarah, and formed the first son of his flesh, Ishmael. And once Isaac, the son of promise, was born, and friction occurred between Sarah and Hagar, uh, Abraham set Hagar and Ishmael into the desert of Bathsheba, and they appeared to have reached a point where Hagar thought that she and her son were going to die. And uh, 
This is what we read that happened in Genesis 21. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs, talking about Ishmael, and she went and sat herself down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot. For she said, Let not me see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand. Listen, ready? For I will make him a great nation. I. I will make him a great nation. That's God speaking. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. Here we discover the genesis of the nation of Islam, uh, through whose loins uh, of Ishmael instead of uh, Isaac. We can't forget that God in his wisdom and in his love said, for I will make him a great nation. Now certainly there are those of that faith that are fanatical. They're bent on destruction. They're bent on uh, destruction of Christians and uh, other people around the world. Uh, that, these are evil. I mean, that's evil. But there are Christians who are bent on the destruction of Muslims. And that is just as evil. We've got to see it that way. So faith in God does not include geopolitical positioning. You know, It is a love of God for God, for others, because God is love. And this moves us to love one another, including those who are not of our faith. I trust, I trust, you may not, but I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And for those who are not, will not do this in this life, God loves them. He created them. He blessed them. He used them according to his desires. God made them a great nation. So true Christians, true joint heirs with Christ must come to terms with the fact that God has done this, and because we are adopted into his family here, his purposes are not completely seen or known by us, and uh, we have no right to condescend to people who love and seek God but are of other faiths, Islam included. Just a note on that before we go to our board of direction. All right, board of direction tonight. Jim is a Calvinist post-trib Trinitarian who believes baptism is necessary for salvation. Jane is an Arminius pre-trib modalist who sees spiritual gifts like tongues as vital and necessary to spiritual rebirth. Mike is a Benetarian preterist who insists on the importance of weekly communion and heavy-handed worship services. Is there out there a best collection, if we could go through the smorgasbord of, of Christianity, could we take a basket and pick out the very best approaches to the faith from all these different things, put them in a basket, and say, this is the best way for a human being to see the faith. Um, and if there is a best way, how would we determine how to do this? In my life, I've been presented with a number of views and of doctrines of the faith. I started, of course, you know, in Mormonism. Then I went to Calvary Chapel, fully embraced futurism, pre-trib futurism, and, uh, and of course, Trinitarianism. I spent, you might not know this, a little bit of time as a Calvinist. It wasn't long, but I was a Calvinist for a brief period of time. I read R.C. Sproul's book, a compilation of uh, something about the light, and I said, I think Calvinism makes uh, great sense. Uh, and then I w was led to uh, partial preterism and rambled all around those things. And as you know, over the past five years or so, I've come to dis discover that some of these views are not really in harmony with what many people uh, think are orthodox. So one of the main views has to do with the purpose and place of the Bible. Who has written it and why and its place in our world today? So I ask, does this view contribute more to my basket that I've walked through the smorgasbord of Christianity, does that view help the basket or does it hurt the basket? And how can I tell? 
So many Christians will say the best combination of the contents of a person's basket is the truth. That's what they would say. You put the truth in your basket, you have the best combination of beliefs and practices. But that does nothing to answer our question. What collection can be determined to be the best because we have differences of opinion of what people put in their basket. We have differences, so how can we determine what is the best? We cannot say that the views that bring us the most happiness are the best, because if you did that, all you'd have to do is find the happiest people on earth, they're probably at Disneyland, and that doesn't mean that they have the best collection of Christian beliefs. Happiness can't do that, even though some people would try to suggest it. So I have kind of tried to lay out side by side as many doctrinal and theological and, and, and issues and practices. And in my opinion, I think there are seven criteria that we can, we can expose those practices and doctrines to. And the way we answer these seven questions to the doctrine you have picked will tell you if it belongs in your basket or not, okay? So the first one up here on the board is, can the doctrine that we, or practice be reasonably supported in the Bible? That's the first thing. Uh, I say reasonable because we gotta avoid dogma. And if there's a reasonable amount of support for the doctrine, we've gotta start there. And I say support so that the idea is not just alluded to in a single passage. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about baptism for the dead. That isn't truly supported in Scripture. It's just a sideline reference that Paul makes and which people have created a whole big thing. So when I say support, it means there's more than one passage. You know, there's a handful, a dozen, two dozen, five dozen passages that support the doctrine or practice that you are adding to your basket. So there's the first uh, criteria. Can the doctrine or practice be reasonably supported by the Bible, okay? Second one is, does the belief or the practice lend to greater or lesser faith and trust in God and Christ, okay? This is a very subjective question because only the individual knows if believing in what they believe increases their faith or hurts their faith, okay? So it either, this practice or belief is either helping you and increasing your faith or it is hurting you and it's decreasing your faith. But these, you can't be taken alone. They all have to be met, the seven, in order for something I believe to go into the basket, okay? Three, does the doctrine or practice lead to greater or lesser love? Does it lead to greater or lesser love? If the doctrine or practice le leads to lesser love, that's a problem with the doctrine because God is love and love is paramount. So uh, this can be kind of measured by us and when we look at others. Do they possess the love of God? Where faith is a, is a subjective, personal thing, love is something that others can see. So when we find somebody who is full of dogmatic positions, but they're not loving, you can say there's a problem with that, that approach being in their basket. It doesn't fit number three. Four, have we actually and practically seen ourselves grow in faith and love as a result of the practice? And uh, so it's not just having faith and, be, and having love, it's do you grow in your faith toward God and in your love for God and man as a result of that practice or that doctrine being in your basket. If you find yourself not growing, growth is the key to number four, there's a problem, okay? So fifth, does a particular stance glorify God more or less, okay? This one's interesting because we would want whatever we are believing to always be something that puts God in the highest position and in the greatest light. If we have something that takes him and diminishes him, then I think we have a problem with keeping that in our basket. If you're doing a practice that diminishes God, 
I think that it's something that should, you probably want to take out because you want all your thoughts, beliefs, practices, and doctrines to be something that glorifies him more and doesn't uh, bring him down. Sixth, and does the doctrine, practice, theology create in your heart greater humility or greater pride? Does it make you less grateful or more grateful for Jesus? Are you less judgmental or more judgmental because of the doctrine or practice that you've included? And, and then bottom line, are you becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus as a result of that practice or belief in your life? Finally, seventh, does the practice do more to liberate you uh, or does it do more to put you into bondage? And that's the final qualifier that I would use as a criterion to see if, if it's, a, it's a worthwhile practice or doctrine. Do you find yourself more free in Christ because of the belief or practice? Or do you find yourself more restricted and limited? And I don't care what is binding you. If it's a church, if it's a a principle they have, if it's a code, if it's that, or if it's your own mind, if you are becoming more uh, restricted in how you're able to love and believe on God because of something, that might be a, a key for you to get that something out of there. For instance, I will just use one, and it's one we talk about often, tithing. If, that, if that tithing is used and you find yourself adding that to your basket in the smorgasbord of Christian shopping, and you find that once you've put that in your basket, suddenly you're feeling like, gosh, I better, I better do that. You know, I better do it because people are watching. My pastor's watching. Uh, God will be, need, wants me to pay that certain amount. When that starts happening, run from that. So then we look at Mormonism, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Baptists, Arminius, whatever, all the rest, and compare all the practices and doctrines in their baskets and ask yourselves, those seven questions. Now here's the key. For some people, what the Lutherans teach answers these perfectly. And so they relate to the Lutheran church and they find themselves better for being Lutherans. And the Southern Baptist has no right to say, you need to embrace the Southern Baptist way. If the Lutheran discovers that these things are met, the Lutheran stays a Lutheran and God is, everything's made right. So it's a very subjective thing we do when we take the criterion and we look at our beliefs. But it should be applied as individuals to what you believe. And it's a great way to kind of go through and say, okay, I believe this. Does it fit here? You might discover that your view on something is really making you mean, is not glorifying God, your love is less because of it, your faith is really not changed, or it might, even if, if I believe, even if it fails in one of these areas, you might consider removing it. So there it is. And with that, let's get to our topic for tonight, which is mother in heaven. Mother in heaven, if you're from the East Coast. So in speaking of the premortal existence, we can't leave that subject unless we touch on mother in heaven. Uh, remember in our discussing God a number of months ago, that the LDS believe that God has a father as a father as a father known as the eternal regression of God's. Well, part of the eternal regression is that God, God's always, if they become a God, have a wife or wives by whom they populate their worlds with their spirit children. And this wife or wives, if you're in a fundamentalist Mormon group, that they really preach mothers in heaven more than the uh, traditional Christian, uh, Mormon church does. But it's a, it, this wife is known as mother in heaven. Now, the origins of the doctrine within Mormonism can be traced back to the founder, Joseph Smith, but the teaching really didn't become widely known until after his death in 1844. Today, the LDS admit openly that there is a mother in heaven, and this belief is consistent with the way they see God as having a body of flesh and bone. Because he was once a man, and he lived through a mortal state like we did, 
He reached his exaltation through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel and of the Mormon gospel. And this includes having been sealed for time and all eternity, eternal principles in the Mormon temple to his wife and the two of them remaining faithful to their temple covenants, now going on and propagating the world with spirit children. So it only makes sense that if God went through all the uh, probationary period and was faithful that his wife did too, and they were able to go in uh, and start populating their worlds, their universes with spirit children. So um, it goes without saying that this teaching is unique to Mormonism today, although I do see a, a lot of pagans talking about becoming goddesses, and I do see, uh, sometimes I see bumper stickers and things kind of relating to that. But if you go back anciently, and we're going to talk about that, it's not an original thought to Mormonism, but Mormonism today is one of the only one major religions that talk about it. What's unusual about the subject, though, within Mormonism is that while they will reference it occasionally, they'll just tap on it, it's a subject that's not greatly accessed. Um, so where Heavenly Father is constantly talked about, all the time, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, Heavenly Parents, very rarely mentioned, if at all, you know, over the course of a week or a month of the LDS Church. Uh, what makes this especially intriguing is the readiness with which the subject is mentioned. So it's, it's kind of a paradoxical thing. The, the members don't talk too much about it, but it will come up sometimes in special magazine articles or songs in the hymn book. Uh, that speak to Heavenly Mother. It was in 1844 that founder Joseph Smith at the point in the throes of taking as many wives to himself as he could. I mean, 1840 to 1844, that dude, he was marrying them right and left, getting to as many wives as possible, that he outlined the controversial view that differs dramatically from traditional Christian consensus that there is God and there is not God and wife. Among other things, it was here that Smith taught that God would share his glory with his children and that righteous couples, righteous couples could become exalted beings or gods and goddesses, priests and priests, after this life. This was introduced by Smith in the 1840s. Uh, as stated, there's really no, no known record of Smith explicitly teaching Heavenly Mother, but several of his contemporaries attribute the theology to him directly. And then what has happened is as a natural result of him mentioning something, the theology has grown. I have um, found this to have happened a number of times in the case of Joseph Smith, the founder. He has planted a small seed, a reference. He might have talked to guys behind back doors or talked to some of his wives secretly about some things. Those seeds then the brethren who came in after Smith watered, planted, harvested, and made the doctrine much bigger than what he just originally alluded to. Nevertheless, there's an editorial footnote in History of the Church 5, 254, that quotes Smith as saying, quote, Come to me, hear the mysteries man has not seen. Here's our Father in heaven and Mother the Queen. Now remember that that's a footnote in LDS History of the Church. He calls Mother in Heaven the Queen. Remember that in, in we get, uh, when I get to this in just a second. In addition, a secondhand account states that in 1839, Smith told one of his wives, uh, Zena Diantha Huntington, that after her death, her mother, quote, not only would she know her mother again on the other side, but more than that, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven, end quote. So he, he did say some things, but these aren't firsthand uh, uh, references. After the death of Smith in 1845, there is a woman named Eliza R. Snow, and she is a poet. Many of them thought, many people thought she was a prophetess during the early LDS church. And she wrote a poem. It was a poem first titled, Oh, uh, My Father, excuse me, it's titled My Father in Heaven. And the contents of that poem were used in an LDS hymn that's still sung today. And two stanzas from it say, In the heavens, I can't remember the tune, our parents single, No, the thought makes reason stare, 
truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I've a mother there. And then another stanza says, when I leave this frail existence, when I lay this mortal by, father, mother, may I meet you in your royal courts on high. So Erastus Snow, an early LDS apostle, said, do you mean we should understand that deity consists of a man and woman? Most certainly I do. If I believe anything that God has ever said about himself, I must believe that deity consists of a man and woman. Now, we're not talking about a feminine and masculine nature in deity, as the Hebrews thought. We are talking about a couple right there. So there is the queen of heaven, according to Smith. Now, this notion is affirmed uh, by later church leaders, Hubie Brown, Talmadge, uh, Melvin Ballard, Bruce R. McConkie, of course. The LDS Church did not formally acknowledge the existence of Mother in Heaven, formally, until 1909. In a statement on the origin of man, the first presidency on the 50th anniversary of Char Charles Darwin's origin of the species. So on the 50th anniversary of Darwin's origin of the species, the LDS Church uh, inferred the theology uh, of a mother in heaven. Uh, then in 1995, there, uh, they came out with the family, a proclamation to the world. Many of you will remember that, uh, where the church officially stated that each person is, quote, a spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents. So there was a, a public reference. In 1815, an official essay was published in the church website surveying 171 years of statements about Mother in Heaven and confirmed that it is part of church doctrine. Brigham Young, who taught that uh, Adam is Heavenly Father, taught that his wife Eve is Heavenly Mother. And uh, he said, quote, I tell you more, Adam is the father of our spirits. Our spirits and the spirits of all the heavenly family were begotten by Adam and born of Eve. I tell you, when you see your father in the heavens, you will see Adam. When you see your mother that bore your spirit, you will see Mother Eve. Uh, now, obviously, uh, not obviously, but the LDS Church has since renounced Brigham Young's teaching on Adam God, but uh, uh, that was, you know, uh, so the only one who really believes in mothers in heaven uh, uh, and that Eve was the mother of all spirits are the fundamentalist LDS in southern Utah and scattered around the state and other places. Um, Young also preached that resurrected eternal mothers would, quote, be prepared to frame earths like unto our own. Early 20th century leader B.H. Roberts pointed out that Heavenly Mother doctrine presents a conception of the nobility of women and of motherhood and of wifehood, placing her side by side with the Divine Father. Apostle John A. Woodstow, a contemporary of B.H. Roberts, wrote that the afterlife is given radiant warmth by the thought that we have a mother who possesses the attributes of godhood. In 1894, the juvenile instructor and official publication of the LDS Church published the hymn, Our Mother in Heaven. In 1960, an LDS seminary teacher published in Mormon Cyclopedia said, the name of our mother in heaven has been withheld. This is what I was taught. So this article came out in 1960 because the way God the Father and Jesus' names have been profaned. Now, when I grew up, that was the reason why we didn't talk about Mother in Heaven or do anything relative to Mother in Heaven because we have treated God the Father's name and Jesus' name so badly, the Father doesn't want us blaspheming his wife's name. And so he would get really mad, you know, if we, he gets really mad when we say, Oh, God the Father, or Jesus Christ, you know, in a profane way. But he'd really get ticked if we said, Mother in Heaven. So that's why. Uh, a Wikipedia article, however, says that no general authority has ever made a statement denying belief in Heavenly Mother, nor stating that her existence is too sacred to discuss. Uh, several factors may influence the current trend that sees even a mention of Heavenly Mother as treading on forbidden ground. You know what that's saying? That today, you start to get yourself into trouble in the LDS Church, if you start talking too much about her. Uh, in a LDS uh, BYU 2010, Glenn L. Pace, who's gotten himself in trouble with McConkie years back, 
of a member of the LDS First Quorum of the 70s said, quote, listen to this, this is touching. Sisters, I testify that when you stand in front of your heavenly parents in those royal courts on high and look into her eyes and behold her countenance, any question you ever had about the role of women in the kingdom will evaporate into the rich celestial air. Because at that moment you will see standing directly in front of you your divine nature and destiny, end quote. So, what's it all amounted to? Um, while most people tread lightly on the subject within the church, the subject has done what subjects like this will do when they crop up. Some LDS feminists, Lynn Whitesides, Maxine Hanks, Janice Allred, Margaret Toscano, were all disciplined because they started praying to Mother in Heaven. If you ever read the LDS magazine, uh, not the LDS, but the church magazine that criticizes some things in the church, Sunstone, there's often articles about praying to Mother in Heaven. I mean, if she's a deity, then the natural inclination that is for women to maybe talk to her and maybe even men. So, and a BYU professor was fired for publicly doing the same. What this said to LDS members is, you do not have a right to cross the unwritten line with that, uh, about Mother in Heaven. That subject is anathema. Don't go into that subject. Uh, nevertheless, she exists in their hearts. Uh, she's out there looming, and in a way, in my opinion, she kind of represents Mother in Heaven, and the way she's d discussed and handled here kind of represents the way women are handled in the LDS Church as well. Uh, they're admitted to be around. They're admitted to be the wife of their husband. They are there to provide all the husband or the father's needs and wants, but they really don't have much of a say outside of that realm when the rubber meets the road within the hierarchy of the church. Um, I, I'm not saying that's how it is in the home of LDS people, but that's how it often is uh, in the LDS church. Um, just really quickly, when it comes to Christianity, the only real source of a practice of a mother in heaven uh, is tied to early paganism and the origin of Mary or Mariology or Mary worship, which you would find centuries before Christ appeared in Son of Mary pictures, centuries before Christ appeared in those mother and child and pagan Babylon were pictured. There were drawings and illustrations of mother and child. Okay, so this is a very pagan idea that came way back. In 1854, according to Catholic history, uh, Mariology, the Queen of Heaven, she's called the Queen of Heaven, uh, was appointed to be the Queen of Heaven and an Earth, and this was made official in eight, 1954 by Pius XII, that Mary is the Queen of Heaven and Earth. So the Catholics have actually made it an official stance, and, but they call her the Mother, the Queen of Heaven and Earth, being the Mother of Jesus. Well before the Catholics, this idolatry was rooted in ancient mythology. A start uh, is the mother, the queen of heaven, and to the Assyrians, Ashtoreth to the Sidonians, uh, Bawani to the Hindus, Greece had Venus, Juno has, uh, Rome has Juno, Diana of the Ephesians was a female, and from her came all creatures of the earth. She gave birth to all creation. The Egyptians had theirs, the Etruscans had Isis, these are all forms of the queen of heaven that have been passed down from pagan uh, uh, societies. All of these versions of mother of God or mother in heaven or queen of heaven were warned against uh, by Jeremiah who describes the Jews that had rebelled against God as had making cakes to the queen of heaven. Uh, this is what God says to the prophet Jeremiah about those Jews who are making cakes to the queen of heaven. Here it is. He says, to Jeremiah, therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear you, Jeremiah. See thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods. 
that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to confusion of their own faces? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured upon this place. Bottom line, God did not want any kind of recognition to this queen of heaven idea. God says clearly, I am one, I am he, I am that I am, and there's none of this business about mother in heaven. Uh, I'm not going to go to that second quote by Jeremiah. Uh, so, and one last thing, apparently these cakes they made were in the shape of a moon and it's fly. And, and, and uh, other translations say that the Septuagint version gives us that this moon shape is related to the queen of heaven. The Phoenicians called the moon Ashtoreth. Astart is the queen of heaven, uh, who was the wife of Baal, the king of heaven. Baal or Moloch, pagan god, king of heaven, and then Ashtoreth or Ashtoreth, queen of heaven. Very, very pagan. Um, and they were both male and female deities. And what happened was because they are male and female de uh, deities, uh, prostitution often became involved in the worship of them because the male and female deities were uh, the source of all procreation. And so when you worship these false gods with male and female, de then the, on earth the prostitutes would get involved in sexual practices and rituals to honor these male and female deities. And you don't, it's not that far off, really, when you look at the heart of of Mormonism, not that they have these sexual uh, uh, rituals, but it is based off procreation and it is based on uh, this idea. You know, I talked about the moon. Our Monday, that what we call Monday, is a direct correlation to Moon Day. That's where it came from. Moon Day was the time when you worship the mother of heaven, the moon goddess. So that ends our uh, study of the premortal existence from the LDS and from the traditional Christian views. We've talked about the makeup of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Satan, souls, spirits, and the mothers or queen of heaven. Next week, we're going to start. We're going to bring it all down, and we're going to talk about creation. And we'll start there. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are taking your calls and clearing them, Take a look at this, and we're going to come back to Burt in Shingle Springs, California. Like a growing tree, we've gone through some stages in our approach to doing church. For the past few years, we've remained at campus. Christian anarchists, meaning to prayerfully understand scripture. After everything has been said and done, we find this last acronym far too limiting. After all, he is probably the only Christian anarchist in North America. So after 10 years, campus, today, and hopefully for the decades to come, should be known as Christian Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture. Come as you are. By the way, if you live outside of the Salt Lake area, you can always go to uh, campuschurch.tv, click on live service on Sunday, and sit with us on your couch in your jammies. And uh, we go verse by verse in the morning at 10 or in the afternoon at 2.30. Let's go to Bert in Shingle Springs, California. Bert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, Sean. I'm glad you're taking my call. Yeah. Uh, I called you a couple of months ago, on May the 3rd to be exact. You may recall that I talked about the term familiar spirit. Anyway, this time I'd like to share with you a few points concerning the doctrine of uh, everlasting punishment. May I do that? Yes. Last week you answered a question relevant to the Greek word ionios. Yeah. Translated as forever, eternal, and everlasting. Now, since this same adjective is applied to both everlasting life 
and everlasting damnation, most Christians assume that punishment in hell never comes to an end. The fact is, the Bible never refers to divine punishment as being endless. The word endless is only found twice in the New Testament, and in neither verse is it used in reference to punishment. Now, as you mentioned, Ionios, the word for forever, eternal, everlasting, actually means age-long, meaning that it comes to an end. But when Scripture speaks of the uh, eternal God, that does not limit God's existence as being age-long, for he has always existed and always will. The question is, how should we really understand Ionios? I'd like to give you a key. Are you ready for this, Sean? I'm ready. All right. The Greek word for everlasting, eternal, and forever tends to mark duration, as long as the nature of the subject allows. Let me explain that. If the subject is immortal, such as God, then eternal life would imply endlessness. God is without a beginning, without an end. On the other hand, if the subject is mortal, such mm. as men who are subject to death, mm. that would imply an existence which comes to an end. Mm. For example, we can say, may the king live forever. He doesn't. He dies. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, yet Jonah himself described the duration of his imprisonment as lasting forever. That's not a very long forever. <laughs> but now, how do we apply the term Ionios to the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation? I'd like to bring three scriptures to your attention. First, in 1 Timothy 6.16, we read, Only God has immortality. Mm. And then in Romans 2.7, it says that man seeks for immortality. Man does not seek for something he already has. Mm. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 15.53, we learn that mankind does not put on immortality until the day of the resurrection. Mm. Now, if it can be proven that the unrighteous are raised to immortality, then we can conclude that their bodies and souls suffer in hell endlessly. But the Bible nowhere declares that the unrighteous put on immortality. Mm. When I read 1 Corinthians 15 very carefully, I see that only the righteous put on immortality. This is the so-called first resurrection that we read about in Revelation 25. Those who come forth in the resurrection of damnation, however, are not raised to immortality. They do not receive immortality until after they have been punished and corrected. At that point, they're finally reconciled to God. That is phenomenal. Well put. Excellent teaching. Thank you for the insights. You, you've benefited our audience uh, greatly, Bert. Keep it coming, man. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Tara in West Valley Cité. Tara, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Hi, Tara. Um, can you change my name to Ann? Because I don't want to have my real name used. People recognize, people recognize me too much. Okay, this is not. It's Ann. Okay. You're on the air, sister. Oh, okay. Um, I have a question. How do you know that Mormon, Marie, um, Moroni, and Nephi are not real angels? How do I know that they're not real angels? Angels, yes. I don't know that they're not real because angels. Because why, the thing is, why would um, they want Joseph Smith to put forth a story about them? These angels that have that have always been angels, never been anything but angels, why would they want a story put forth that they are humans? So you're suggesting then, uh, or you're inferring that they were demonic? I'm, I'm saying that there's, a, there's, there's, there's so much that people say that he wrote the Book of Mormon, uh -huh. But what if he did not write the Book of Mormon? What if this Book of Mormon is the Book of Angels, and it is the angels' book? Not Joseph Smith, okay. the angels. So why would they want a story put forth that they're humans? So, so are you suggesting that they were seeking for glory or, and that, or that it was righteous that the angels have a book? No, I'm saying that I think this is about an agenda. This is just my personal opinion. Oh. But from what I've seen, I'm not LDS or anything, uh -huh. but um, I've looked at it. And from my perspective, the only thing I can, that I can see is that these angels have an agenda. 
and it's way beyond Joseph Smith or any of the church headquarters. It's their agenda, and it's and it's and it seems to be targeted at Christianity, but it doesn't appear that way to me when I look at it. When I look at the Book of Mormon, it seems to me this is targeted at Israel because God has His book. These angels are, you know, putting forth their book, and this is a this is a. Um, Israel, the God of Israel versus the angels, the way I see it. Well, Anne or Anna, I, I've never heard that uh, uh, proposed before, but you know what? It's another theory into how it came about because the man did seem uh, pretty convinced that he had this thing brought to him and delivered and taught and, and all that other stuff. So maybe he was under the, uh, under the direct contact of heavenly beings, I would suggest fallen heavenly beings if they were looking to create their own book. Um, and here's the interesting thing, he did dabble extensively in the occult all through his early life with his father. And so the fact that he was able to conjure up angels who were uh, maybe it got well, him to... Maybe there's a smokescreen here, because, you know, I've heard from different people that he used these different objects, but the thing is, and maybe that's just a smokescreen, because if you have the three most powerful angels in the entire world, you know, that are on your side and that are pushing their agenda and that are, you know, pushing you, you don't need all these little symbols. It's, I think it's just a smokescreen. I see. I do. I think this is 100% the angels and that they are in control of Mormonism. And it has never been the Mormon church and not headquarters. They may think that they are. But these right, angels, the angels, if they were, you know, in power, and and if Moroni, sorry, their names, Moroni, yeah. Mormon, and Nephi were in power during the time of ancient Egypt and controlled their religion and their things, too, and, you know, everybody's puppets. Hey, and, it's and a, so it's this, a great, I think this it, is no different. It's a great theory, Anne. It's a great theory. I, I, I enjoy it because it is entertaining, and it could be true. I'm not, you know, who knows? But it's it's as viable as many of the others. Okay. Thanks, my sister. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Uh, Matt says off air. I would like Sean's opinion on the Islamination. Islamination. It makes me want a salami sandwich. Islamination happening all over the world. You mean? Does that mean? What is Islamination? Ask him. Wendy, stop flirting with him. Just ask him. Oh, take over, uh, Islam taking over the world? No. Uh, I think that if Christians could take over the world, they'd try to do it too. If Mormons could take over the world, they'd try to do it too. If Islam's taking over the world, you know, maybe the world needs to, you know, look at itself and see why. Uh, I don't know. All I know is God is in control. I'm not going to make it something I fear. Uh, you know, if they have a jihad here in Salt Lake City, and they're going to come at me with a whatever, you know, I don't know. I, it doesn't matter to me. I walk by faith in God and Christ, and I, and I don't worry. Uh, so I know there's, we live in an age when information is right on us, so it seems like everything is happening right now, but I don't know. It could be a lot of media. I know ISIS is bad, and I know all those things are terrible, uh, but I'm not going to get all wrapped up in it. I think that, uh, I think that's not a concern uh, for me. Maybe for others. Uh, I used to see your show on local TV. This is from Mortoma. Uh, what happened to your local TV presence? Did the LDS fight you and get you off the air? I'm sure they had some kind of committee or something dedicated to fighting the show. The only thing that is not so good about internet streaming only is that people have to intentionally go to the website to see. And I, but I actually stumbled onto it on TV. That accidentally still might have lead to a few conversions. I watched it. I was never LDS. Came here from Indiana for a job and stumbled onto the Comcast channels. Uh, so anyway, uh, then I Googled Heart of the Matter to see what happened to you guys. And he asked, well, you know, just for those of you who don't know, what happened was on uh, January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, or 5th uh, of 2013, I think, I came out and I said that over the course of Christmas, I had visited 10 of the largest churches in Utah. I took a notepad, I went with my wife, and I sat there for their whole thing, and I, and I just recorded everything that went on. 
And when I was done with that 10 church survey, I said, this is bullshit. And I didn't say that on the air. I said, it's just a joke. I mean, I know there are good churches in Utah. I know there's good churches in the nation and people who teach the word and they pray to God. But I saw shows. I saw fog machines. I saw constant petitioning for money. Uh, I just, everywhere we went, there was a petition for money. I saw uh, rock shows. I saw uh, the majority of the teachings. Nine out of the 10 churches, the pastor got up there and thought, or maybe he was right, that the entire audience wanted to hear about his recent adventure doing one thing or another. And only one of them taught a message straight out of the Bible, and that was the Christmas message that was timely because of the season. Sorely disappointed, and so I said to myself, I'm going around and I'm yanking out Mormons from the Mormon church, and I'm, I'm preaching Jesus, but I'm giving them all this ammunition as to why their church is so messed up, and sending them to where? It just ticked me off, and so I said, I'm going to spend the next year going after the Christian church. And I'm going to focus as much of my animus and my anger that I did on Mormons, on the Christian church. And within three days or four days, every, all the pastors got together under the banner of one guy who led the charge. And they went to the owners and they raised holy heck and they yanked me off the air. The Mormon church had nothing to do with me getting taken off the air. In fact, it was ironic that for seven years I was on the air every week ripping the Mormon church apart. I got a few death threats from Mormons, but the Mormon church, they used to buy our videos. I used to hand deliver those videos to them, to their church headquarter office on North Temple. And I'd walk in and they'd say, okay, just a second. And they'd make a call and this dude in a suit would come down and he'd say, hey, Sean. And I'd say, hey, how you doing? And they'd say, here are your videos. And they'd take them. You know, they weren't afraid. You know, but the Christian pastors, when I said they shouldn't be having paid vacations and all this other stuff on the air, that early January show, they went nuts. And you should see it now. I mean, I'm not kidding. I go out in public and every now and then people will come up and say, hey, I used to watch you and stuff. But uh, now I see people with church stickers on their cars and, and wearing crosses and church T-shirts in public places every week at least, if not every three or four times a week, and they look at me and they turn their head because the pastors made it known this guy is not on our side. Well, you know what? I'm not on their side. I'm on the side of the truth. I'm on the side of the word. I'm on the side of God. And, I don't, and, and it has been nothing but a blessing to tell you the truth because had we still been on local TV, uh, I would have been muted. I could not have been able to go out and do what we do here. And now we've built our own studio, and God blessed us to be able to do that so far. Hasn't been easy. I mean, it definitely, we had far more financial support pouring in when I was on local TV and really going after those Mormons, man. It benefited our uh, pocketbook. I said to my wife before I went out that day to speak against the Christian church, I said, you can ask her if you ever see her. You know what this is going to mean, don't you? And she said, I think, you know, I guess I do. I said, it's going to mean very difficult things. But I said, we're going to do it. And it has. But God blesses us. You move forward in faith. And we praise him for his support. But that's the lowdown on that whole story. How much time, D? Four, Four minutes. Uh, listen, this is, I was active LDS 33 years. This is Cindy H. Never knowing how much of deep doctrine and history until about five years ago on the internet found you by accident. I became addicted to try to find the truth, and I did. I also found out that I had a sister wife in the eternities due to a clearance done before my husband was sealed to me after he was divorced. I was told he canceled it. Even my bishop didn't tell me, but they didn't. <laughs> uh, your show, Mormon Stories, etc. I'm sure that etc. includes Bishop Earl. You can find him on Roku. And uh, opened my eyes, and I found the true Jesus, and I'm completely born again, washed in the blood, totally heart changed, filled with the Spirit. And uh, she said, my family prayed for 33 years for me to see the light. 33 years, and she says, and now I have. You know, it's a lesson to us. Pray for those who are in bondage. Uh, love those who are in bondage. Wait on the Lord. Don't fight with them. 
if they ask you a question, definitely teach them the truth. But you're not going to win them through argumentation mostly. You're going to win them through your love. And uh, I'm going to wrap it up with this. This is an article by a guy named John Foreman who is with the Christian band called Switchfoot. And he was asked, is Switchfoot a Christian band? And he gave, this was sent to me by Kev, a fantastic reply. If I go over a little bit for time, we'll end it right after. He says, quote, To be honest, this question grieves me because I feel that it represents a much bigger issue than simply a couple switchfoot tunes. In true Socratic form, let me ask you a few questions. Does Lewis or Tolkien mention Christ in any of their fictional series? Are Bach's sonatas Christian? What is more Christ-like, feeding the poor, making furniture, cleaning bathrooms, or painting a sunset? There is a schism between the sacred and the secular in all of our modern minds. The view that a pastor is more Christian than a volley girls' volleyball coach is flawed and heretical. That is a great line. The view that a pastor is more Christian than a girls' volleyball coach is flawed and heretical. The stance that a worship leader is more spiritual then a janitor is condescending. These different callings and purposes further demonstrate God's sovereignty. Many songs are worthy of being written. Switchfoot will write some. Keith Green, Bach, and perhaps yourself have written others. Some of these songs are about redemption. Others are about the sunrise. Others are about nothing in particular, written simply for the joy of music. None of these songs have been born again. And to that end, there is no such thing as Christian music. None of these songs have been born again, and to that end, there is no Christian music. No, Christ didn't come and die for my songs. He came for me. Yes, my songs are a part of life, but judging from Scripture, I can only conclude that our God is much more interested in how I treat the poor and broken and the hungry than the personal pronouns I use when I sing. I am a believer. Many of these songs talk about this belief. An obligation to say this or do that does not sound like the glorious freedom that Christ died to afford me. I do have an obligation, however, a debt that cannot be settled by my lyrical decisions. My life will be judged by my obedience, not my ability to confine my lyrics to this box or that. We all have a different calling. Switchfoot is trying to be obedient to who we are called to be. We are not trying to be audio A, U2, or POD, or Bach. We are trying to be switchfoot. You see, a song that has the words Jesus Christ, listen, a song that has the words Jesus Christ is no more or no less Christian than an instrumental piece. I've heard lots of people say Jesus Christ, and they aren't talking about our Redeemer. You see, Jesus didn't die for our tunes. So there is no hierarchy of life or songs or occupation. There is only obedience. We have a call to take up our cross and follow. We can be sure these roads will be different for all of us. Just as you have one body and every part has a different function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each of us belong to all the others. Please be slow to judge brothers who have a different calling. And that's by John Foreman of the band called Switchfoot. Uh, fantastic insights. You know, all this hierarchical stuff and is this Christian music and all. I mean, he just, he's in what they call a Christian band. He just blows it away. It's awesome. And with that, join us next week as we hit on the subject of creation here in Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monks.
I can feel the 